Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, Cash. How's it I, going? I, I, have to, I have to apologize. Cash and I got like 15 minutes into this episode before realizing that I had forgotten to hit record on our, our virtual podcast producing platform. And so we're just going to start again, run it back and... See if we can recreate the magic of the last 15 minutes yeah. that will be lost to time, I guess, to everyone but the two of us. Yeah, Time I will never get back, just like watching the All-Star game this past weekend. On that note, we've got some news to talk about unrelated to uh, what was a not actually riveting All-Star weekend. We'll get to those two pieces of news, and then we're going to get to the main point of today's episode, which is going to be Wolfon wrote three pieces over the last week that you should go check out on the Score app. And what those three pieces are is uh, breaking down the six teams who will kind of define the trade deadline in the sense that they have the biggest and most impactful decisions to make related to the trade deadline in terms of are they buyers, are they sellers, are they putting this guy on the table, are they not? So that's what today's episode is going to be about, how those six teams will go about making those decisions and some of the players involved and just, yeah, how that will shape this year's deadline, which is only a couple of weeks away. Before we get to that main point of the pod, we do have a couple pieces of news. The first one is, as I'm sure everyone has seen, if, you know, if they've been online, Myers Leonard is going to be away from the Miami Heat indefinitely. That's a team decision because during a Twitch live or some sort of live stream uh, of him gaming, he used a racial slur about Jewish people. You can see within a few minutes on the stream, if that, he gets a call, says it was from his wife and he has to go. It was Whether it was from his wife or someone in the Heat organization, it was almost surely someone calling to let him know about the shitstorm that he uh, brought upon himself because of the word he chose to use. He responds a few hours later with a very standard and and cliche and honestly pathetic apology if you ask me where he almost he doesn't like fully excuse himself with ignorance but while quote unquote taking responsibility also puts out there that he you know was unaware of the meaning of the word and and claims ignorance in that sense and i think that's absolute bs because racism is one of these spaces in life that rightfully so falls into the category of ignorance is not a defense, right? There are certain things that ignorance doesn't get you off the hook and racism is obviously one of them. So I'm not buying the excuse from Myers Leonard and it doesn't sound like the Heat are either. I mean, some context here, the Heat are owned by by a Jewish man and so they're now going to keep Myers Leonard away from the team. I I know he was hurt anyway and so, I'm you know, we could talk about that and, and... whether this punishment would have been different had it been someone else or a healthy player. But the point is they've doled out this punishment for now. And I hope he doesn't see an NBA court for a while because of this, because there does need to be some sort of standard set with this kind of stuff where regardless of where a player stands in the league, even if it was a bigger player, like they need to at least see this and know that this will not be tolerated. You won't be able to play ball. I I have like just a lot of questions about all of it. First and foremost is like, if Myers Leonard wants us to believe that he didn't know what that word meant, I'm going to need to hear from him what he actually thought that it did mean and why he was using it in, I mean, you can go watch the video, right? Like he was using it in a derogatory context. He obviously knew 
that it was a, a derisive term in some capacity. So if you're using a word that you think is derogatory, but you don't know what it means, I mean, that's you're in the wrong place to start with. But like, if, if anybody is going to buy that shit that he's peddling, I feel like he needs to at least try and explain what he thought he was saying if he wants us to believe that he didn't know what he was saying. But even then, I mean, like to parrot what you just said, like ignorance isn't an excuse, especially when you're using a term like he used. I'm not going to say it, but it was really shocking to hear it. I mean, it's shocking to hear that coming from anybody's mouth, let alone somebody who is doing it on a live stream that like he himself set up. And, you know, I know that this isn't really the point, you know, to be like, well, I can't believe he would he would say something like that publicly when he knew everybody was watching him. The fact that he was using it at all obviously is what's wrong with this situation, but it's it's like that much more chilling when you hear somebody use it in a public forum like that because it's really makes you feel like wow, they they don't care. They don't see anything wrong with this and it just makes me wonder like how like how in God's name that word got into Myers Leonard's lexicon, especially if he's claiming that he didn't know what it meant. Like, where did he hear it then? Like, why did he decide to use that word? There's like a trauma even in just hearing it. There's just like a lot of hate and trauma bound up in that word. And to your point about, you know, what would have happened if this was like a more consequential player? My knee jerk reaction is to say probably nothing. Like, that's the disappointing thing here is like, yeah, Myers Leonard is at this point, not a particularly good NBA player. He's injured and out for the season and the heat still couldn't come out and just like cut ties with him essentially, because they still have like a team option on his contract for next year. And they might want to use that as a trade chip and they're quote unquote cooperating with the NBA's investigation, which I don't know what that investigation is going to entail beyond just watching the five seconds in which he utters, you know, one like the, the single worst anti-Semitic slur that you can utter. Like what what more investigating needs to happen here? It's disappointing. And I don't know, this whole this whole saga has been pretty triggering and stirred up some feelings that I would have rather not had to reckon with, especially on an NBA podcast. But I do hope that there are significant consequences beyond just him taking some time away from the team and the kind of stock, whatever it is, you know, sensitivity training and committing to doing better, whatever it happens to be. It needs to be more done, I think, maybe to just like raise awareness about anti-Semitism and, and, and like the many different forms that it can take. And I don't know, like we, we had to have a conversation in the summertime, right, about Steven Jackson and his misbegotten defense of Deshaun Jackson and the much subtler form of anti-Semitism that that represented. And I think it's maybe just an education issue and something that like isn't ingrained enough, you know, for people to know the history and, and how it can be manifest. And I don't know, maybe that just needs to be a, a point of education in NBA circles moving forward. I hope that whatever the punishment is, it does. Look, I mean, I, I would hope that there doesn't need to even be a deterrent on record, you know, to make people not spew racial slurs. But in general, I hope that whatever punishment Leonard faces, which, uh, you know, neither of us knows what that might be. Is it going to be a certain length of suspension? 
you know, with El Pay that kicks in when he's actually healthy and eligible to play again. I don't know. Can he be completely cut for this? Like, I, I don't know. But whatever the punishment is, I hope it does set a precedent that the level of player he is is irrelevant. Once that precedent is set, it's set. And players or anyone in the NBA will know and should know at that point if they don't already somehow, some way that this stuff won't be tolerated and that there will be legitimate, you know, potentially life-changing and financial consequences for this. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. So yeah, I hope if anything comes out of this, not just as a deterrent in that way, but that, you know, it, it, maybe it does spark players around the league to educate themselves better on stuff like this and take a little more time before they speak on things that they claim they don't know about. All right, let's move on to the other piece of news we're going to get to today. And that is that Blake Griffin, unsurprisingly really, agrees to a minimum deal with the Nets after working out a buyout with the Pistons in which he left $13.3 million on the table. I know you can look at this guy and say he's made tens of millions of dollars in the NBA. He's still making, you know, over a mil. $13.3 million is $13.3 million. I don't care how much money you make. And I think... The fact he was willing to give that money up to join the Nets signifies just how thirsty for team success he is, how hungry for meaningful basketball he is. This is a guy that despite the levels of superstardom he had reached, despite the levels of relevance those Clippers teams had reached, despite how good he was just two years ago, as we mentioned you know, last week, he was an all-NBA guy who dragged that Pistons team to the playoffs. This guy's never played in even a conference finals game. And then you take that into account where he is in his career, the way his body's maybe failing him. I think it's understandable that he is just absolutely committed to getting to a winner, playing, you know, meaningful ball and giving himself the best chance to win a championship. And you can measure how committed he is to that goal in the form of $13.3 million. Yeah, I think that that really speaks to his, I don't know if desperation is the right word, but obviously he, he was very ready to move on and yeah to your point about i think you, you've said you know his the ways his body is failing him which maybe sounds a bit harsh but you know if you watch him play this season that that is kind of what's happening like he is not the player not remotely the player that he used to be and yeah he's only 31 but if he were to wait you know, and, and collect the entirety of a salary for this season and next and stick around Detroit and just hit free agency as a 33-year-old, you know, I think his options as far as being able to meaningfully contribute to a winning team would have been curtailed that much more than they already are. And I think even now, like his ability to meaningfully contribute to to a contending team is kind of an open question, right? His ability to be a productive player for the remainder of this season. Like that's an open question. Like he is, he has not been a productive player for this season. And I think you could point to a few reasons for that or speculate about reasons for that beyond just his physical decline. You know, he's been playing on a Pistons team that to be blunt is, is, completely lacking in supplemental shot creation. Like nobody is creating shots really for Blake Griffin. He has had to create his own offense on a team with, you know, not a ton of spacing. And I think he's obviously going to be playing a completely different role in Brooklyn than he was playing in Detroit. 
And maybe that coupled with a little added motivation from having something to play for rather than playing out the string on a rebuilding team that no longer really had any use for his services. Maybe that'll change what he looks like. Maybe just playing fewer minutes and actually getting some clean spot up looks or, you know, getting a runway on the roll when somebody like a James Harden or a Kyrie Irving is playing the other end of that pick and roll rather than somebody like Killian Hayes or, or DeLon Wright. I think obviously he's going to be put in a position to succeed in what will be a, a much smaller role. And I think it, it would be safe to assume that in that sort of scaled down role, he can have more success. He can be more productive than he's been to this point. But I think it's something that we still kind of just like have to see because what we've seen from Blake Griffin so far this season has not been particularly inspiring. I put a short video together for the scores YouTube page, break it down the whole Blake to the nets thing. And there was three stats I found and included in that video to kind of demonstrate the player he still is, but really still isn't. And the first one is that despite being a bad or maybe at best an inconsistent shooter, but closer to a, just a straight up bad shooter, 55% of his field goal attempts this season have come from deep. He hasn't dunked, not a single dunk in an NBA game since December 12, 2019. And this one maybe shocked me even more than that one. In his 20 games with the Pistons this season, he averaged less drives per game than Svi Mikhailuk, despite playing nearly twice as many minutes as Svi Mifrigan Kaluk. Think about that, man. Think about the player Blake Griffin was, the style of play that he had mastered and brought us out of our seats with. Now he averages less drives per game than Svi Mikhailuk in double the playing time. Is it possible that at least some of that was the situation he was in in Detroit, the supporting cast? Of course. I don't think that can explain that completely. Now, last week I mentioned that despite the fact that playmaking was far and away his best remaining skill and his most translatable skill from team to team, that I wasn't sure he could really maximize the full power of that playmaking if defenses are ignoring him, right? If he's camped out on the perimeter, but also is like a 28% three-point shooter. And if he doesn't have the explosiveness to get to the rim and defenses ignore him, it's hard to really harness the full power of that playmaking. Having said that, Brooklyn might be the one team that can help him maximize that playmaking just because of the amount of talent around him. And you already mentioned, you know, what he might look like on the short roll, getting a pass from Kyrie or Harden or even KD on the other side of that screen and roll. And something I mentioned in the video I was I was talking about is just on an offensive basis. I'm, I'm obviously not ever comparing the two defensively, but from an offensive perspective, as the small ball center off the bench that they're saying he's going to be, is it that crazy to envision Blake Griffin on the nets in a kind of Draymond Green-esque offensive role where coming out of those pick and rolls on the short roll, he is picking teams apart in four on three situations. You know, he's coming out of a pick and roll with one of Kyrie or Harden or KD. And now he, you've got Blake Griffin on the short roll with a shooter like Joe Harris in the corner or a cutter like Bruce Brown lurking. I think that is a way to unlock the very real playmaking that Blake Griffin still possesses. Crazy? Not crazy? 
I'm having a l- little bit of a hard time with that because it, to, to be like super effective in those four on three situations, and we've even seen this with Draymond too. I, I think is having sneakily a great year in, in a very unique way. You wrote but about it. I did, yeah, and I, I think uh, you know a lot of Draymond's playmaking this year is just like coming from the top. Like he's been more of an initiator than a connector. And he's not quite the four-on-three playmaker that he used to be because he's not a threat to score the ball anymore. And that's sort of where I'm at with Blake Griffin. Like, I think Blake's probably more of a threat to score than Draymond is. But if teams are, like, trapping Harden 30 feet from the basket and he's slipping a pocket pass to Blake and then Blake has, you know, 20 feet of ground to cover between himself and the rim, I think it's going to be interesting to see how defenses react to that. Like, are they concerned about him rolling downhill and scoring, you know, enough so that they're kind of like sending help crashing from the wing and that's opening up playmaking options for him? Or are they like, all right, we're going to like kind of like keep our big man back or or like somebody's going to slide over and essentially play between you and between Bruce Brown and the dunker spot. And maybe we'll shade toward the pass and kind of dare you to score dare you to get all the way to the rim and dunk or dare you to hit a floater, you know, like I think that that gets a lot more difficult when is like, is like Blake Griffin's explosiveness is his athleticism completely gone. Like, can he put enough pressure on the rim to force a rotating defense to kind of shade help his way rather than just sort of staying home on the guys that he might conceivably pass the ball to. And I'm not saying like it can't happen. I'm not saying he can't be really dangerous in that situation, but I guess I just need to see it before I believe it. And I think my, my concern would be that teams are just like, we dare you to try and score. We think you're going to, you're going to be getting the ball on the short roll and you're going to be looking to pass. And if you're looking to score, well, then that's a win for us. I don't know if it's quite that bad. And I do think like what you were mentioning about 55% of his shots being threes. I remember there was that game early in the year when I think he he took 21 shots and 16 of them were threes. I, I do think Yes, that speaks to the fact that he doesn't have that first step anymore. He's not blowing by guys. He's not powering through contact at the rim. He's not dunking, as you mentioned, which that, that stat is like will never cease to blow my mind. The fact December that December 12th, 2019. Since 2019. Think of all the situations in a game that allow people to just like get dunks sometimes. Like a, a rebound caroms right to you under the rim. You get like a wide open fast break dunk. Like there are so many ways in which you'd think a player, like even if they have no hops left whatsoever, like a six foot nine player should have some opportunity over a two year span to dunk the ball. And it's it's pretty crazy that that hasn't happened for Blake Griffin. It is crazy, but you know what's going to be even crazier is his reaction on social media when he almost 100% guaranteed dunks in his first game with the Nets. Multiple times. <laughs> yeah. But that but, first one, because you know what's happening. It's happening. But yeah, just to go back to what I was saying. So, so, he hasn't dunked. He he was taking all those threes. He's not really getting to the rim. He's not driving the ball. I, I haven't watched a ton of Pistons, but I've watched like a decent number. Like I've watched, you know, five or six Pistons games this year. And Blake Griffin hasn't been good, but I can understand watching them, why it would be difficult for a player like him who's being asked to kind of initiate and create for himself isn't able to find his way to the rim when like opposing defense can pack the paint without really worrying about the consequences. Cause there just like, isn't a whole lot of shooting on that team. And 
he's going to be playing in so much more space in Brooklyn. He is going to be getting so many more opportunities, like where he's being put in positions to score. Other guys are setting him up and he's not having to create all of his own offense. So it's, uh, it's going to be a lot easier for him, I think. But I guess the big question to me is how much is he really going to play? Because you're saying like they envision his role as being like a small ball center off of the bench. But what does that mean for Jeff Green, who I think fits that role way better than Blake Griffin does because a much better switch defender and a much better three-point shooter. Not only fits it better, like hypothetically, but has done it really well this season too. Like if you look at lineups where Green and KD are the big men on the court. So like Green and KD are on, DeAndre's off. The net defensive rating in those minutes would rank top two in the league. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Green's perfect in that role. So I guess in that alignment is like Jeff Green the four and Blake Griffin nominally is the five or they're just sort of interchangeable. Like, are they playing at the same time or are they cannibalizing each other's minutes? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that Blake Griffin can help them, but if he's taking Jeff Green's minutes, then I feel like that's hurting more than it helps probably because Blake isn't moving particularly well at the defensive end of the floor. And again, maybe that's another kind of thing where he'll be put in a situation where he has something to play for and suddenly we'll start to see him move a lot better. But somehow I don't think so. I like, I don't think he's bringing anything to to the table defensively. The thing with this move is like on, on the surface, it's like no risk. You're getting a player for nothing. You're not giving up anything and you're paying him a minimum contract. I think the potential downside is the opportunity cost. Like whose minutes is he taking and is that making your team better or is it making your team worse? And I, I do think if he's taking any of Jeff Green's minutes, that's probably making the Nets worse. Do you think Blake Griffin gets anything more than a minimum contract as a free agent this summer? I think, yeah. I mean, it's totally dependent on on how the rest of this season goes. If I was... If I was to guess right now, I would say he could get something in the range of like the the biannual exception, maybe, you know, or, or like the room exceptions, but like that kind of a deal where it's like something between like three or 5 million a year on like a short term deal. That's kind of like a prove it, you know, not like a two year, a two year, $10 million deal, but the second year is a team option or something. Exactly. Something like that, where if it was based solely on this past year of production, he would get a minimum deal, but based on his past body of work, it's like worth a flyer, you know, worth the risk of paying him a little bit more than the minimum. That would be my guess if I was, you know, if you're asking me right now, which you are, you're asking me right now. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's correct. My, that's my prediction. But you know, it's, I suppose it's possible. Like he gets to Brooklyn and people realize, okay, if you put this guy alongside other star creators, he can be, you know, offensively, at least sort of a Draymond light where, yeah, you know, you, you put him in short roll scenarios, you give him space to operate and his playmaking can really play up. And suddenly he does have runways to the rim and he's not completely cooked and he actually is still like can get to the bucket and dunk sometimes. Then maybe there will actually be a market for him. All right. We're going to take the break and we're going to come back and we're going to talk some deadline decisions. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. 
And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, six teams with the biggest and most impactful decisions to make related to the trade deadline. Let's start with the Toronto Raptors. Hit me, Wolfon. Well, they have a couple of impending unrestricted... Well, yeah, one impending unrestricted free agent, one player who has a player option for next year that he is almost certain to decline. And obviously the big one that everyone wants to talk about is Kyle Lowry. What should the Raptors do with Kyle Lowry? Does it make sense to hold on to him? Can they justify trading him? It's a kind of complicated question and, you know, more complicated because of this is actually like a recurring theme. And and part of my impetus for writing the piece was like, how does this season change teams thinking when it comes to deadline day trades? Because there are those four extra playoff spots, play in spots, whatever, but like essentially four extra teams are going to have an opportunity to play their way into the playoffs after the regular season is done. And does that change teams thinking as far as like when it's time to sell or like when it's worth buying or when it's worth holding through the deadline. And especially, you know, in a season when it's not like if you get those two extra home games, you're not really drawing any additional gate revenue. So I'm curious about how that sort of plays into teams thinking. And with the Raptors, like, I think they're better than their record. They're sub 500 right now, but they have, I think the ninth best net rating in the league. And I think, you know, if, if they get past this COVID outbreak and manage to get everybody healthy, they could go on a decent run in the second half of the season and wind up as high as fourth in the East and make the second round and maybe give a team like a legitimate scare in a second round series. But that is like their absolute high end outcome. So is it worth it for them to push for that and to hope that that's the outcome they get? when they're going to be playing in Tampa Bay. It just like doesn't feel particularly practical. But at the same time, when you look at potential Kyle Lowry destinations, there are very few teams around the league that have enough of a need at point guard, have the assets to get that kind of a deal done, and have the impetus to like put real assets on the table for what could be a rental of a player who's about to turn 35. So I think for all those reasons, like it it makes sense for the Raptors to explore trading him. And there's also a decent chance that they won't end up doing it because I don't think they're going to trade him just for the sake of trading him. Like they can hold on to him. And even if they see this season as kind of a lost season, they can re-sign him in the offseason. They can sign and trade him. These Clippers hypotheticals that I've seen thrown out there just don't make any sense. And that that's true for most of the teams that might theoretically get into the mix, basically outside of Philadelphia and and like maybe Denver. I, I don't see I, I don't see a place that has the kind of package that would make it worth Toronto's while to actually flip them. But Philly is the place that I can actually see. And that's that's just been the most logical destination, I think, all along. Especially from the Raptors' perspective, if they're looking to do right by Kyle Lowry, who's the best player in franchise history, 
and you know he is amenable to a trade sending him home to Philly to compete for a championship alongside you know the possible MVP and Joel Embiid I think you'd be hard pressed to find a more mutually beneficial situation than that because Philly has all their own picks they have Tyrese Maxey, Matisse Thybul, like they can put a deal together that I think would make sense, even if the salary matching would still get kind of tricky. Maxey, one of Thybul or Joe, Isaiah Joe, and salary filler, which would most likely have to include Danny Green because you either have to include Danny Green or Tobias Harris. And the Harris thing doesn't make sense because as I've mentioned before, I don't think the Raptors are interested in non-star veterans with multiple years left on their contract. And I don't think the Sixers would want to give up Harris. I think his his shot creation and shot making at his size is the type of thing that could put you over the top in the playoffs. So I think if they need to match salaries, Green is probably the best bet there. So I'd say Maxi has to be in it for sure. I'd say one of Thibault or Joe needs to be in it. You get the salary filler that's made up mostly of Green. And then I'd still say a first rounder or more needs to be in it. Like that's the kind of haul I think the Raptors need to be demanding for Kyle Lowry, given how good Kyle Lowry still is. And especially given the fact that if it's Philly, I think there can be a confidence there that it's probably not just a rental. If Kyle Lowry's going to Philly at this stage in his career to try to win a championship, I don't think he has to see it as like a win it in the next three months or bust situation. I think he'd be going home to essentially end his career over the next couple of years, probably re-ups there. And I think Philly making that deal knows they're doing that. Short of that kind of haul, I don't think they need to, nor do I think they will trade Kyle Lowry. Even me who thinks there is an outside chance for a team like Toronto or Miami to still maybe like squiggle their way to the conference finals. That's the absolute ceiling. And I agree with you that it's most likely a good second round series as their ceiling. Even admitting that this season probably isn't going anywhere of significance, I don't think that has to mean you completely pivot into some sort of like weird weird rebuild. This team's still too good to tank even without Kyle Lowry. So I think you can quote unquote give up on this year in a sense and still plan to feel a very competitive fringe contender next season. And that begins with keeping Kyle Lowry in the fold, even at his age. I'd be more interested if I'm the Raptors in seeing what the market for Norm Powell is because Powell is going to decline that player option and become a free agent. And he's going to demand a pretty sizable raise based on the fact this guy's nearly a 20 points per game scorer on insane efficiency, multi-level scorer. Like he will be in high demand both in the trade market and as a free agent. But I mean, you know, I'm not the biggest Norm Powell fan. I look, I completely respect the insane efficiency with which he scores I've said before, and I'll continue to say, I think it's a problem if you need, if you rely on good Norm Powell as much as this Raptors team does, because bad Norm Powell, if you watch enough Raptors ball, if you watch Norm Powell enough, basketball IQ, not his strength, gets completely lost in the sauce on the defensive end. And even on the offensive end, where all of his value is, can be prone to some bouts of really bad decision making. I think if Norm Powell is like your sixth or seventh man in an ideal situation, you're in good shape. I think if you have to pay Norm Powell to be something more than that or get tricked into this idea that he can be like a second or third best player in a good team, I think you're in trouble. And I think that might be the kind of contract he commands this summer from some other team. So if I'm the Raptors, I don't want to be paying Norm Powell that kind of money. And if I already know in advance that's what it's going to take to bring him back, I'd explore moving him. And I'd almost think that low-key, 
moving Norm Powell is a more realistic option than moving Kyle Lowry and a better option long-term as well. Well, the salary makes him way easier to trade. That's, you know, I, I, I Lowry is a better trade piece. He, he's going to help a team more. He's going to help take a fringe contender into legitimate contender status, whereas Powell is going to... I mean, what's the kind of team that is that is looking to trade for Norm? Is it a team like... I don't even know, like the Lakers, I guess. That's just like off the top of my head that maybe like the Lakers aren't a particularly good shooting team. Right. And and maybe they look at it as like, you know, we just need it. Like we want to bring in a guy who's shooting 44% from three this year. And honestly, like Powell is great at playing off of other creators, right? He's really good at attacking off of the catch, shooting off of the catch. Um, he gives you a sort of downhill element while also being able to space the floor. And if you're a team that isn't going to need him to have the ball in his hands and really just needs him to to lean into what he's good at, which is playing off of other people and, you know, having uh, like some gravity as an off-ball mover and off-ball shooter, like I, I think... So let's let's take the Lakers. Like, is that the kind of team, a team that's already a contender and just wants to sort of like give themselves some insurance or put themselves over the top? Is it more of like a younger team like uh, the Grizzlies, you know, that saying this is we want to bring Powell in and we want to re-sign him and, and have him be part of our future because we think he can help grow with us. Like, is it that kind of team or is it more in the, the category of like a Lakers or even the Sixers, like Powell would be a good, good, a good fit on Philly. Maybe there's even a universe in which if Philly is willing to part with Tobias Harris and the Raptors are willing to eat what's left of Tobias Harris's contract, which is a huge if, like maybe Lowry and Powell go there together. What about off the Suns bench? Yeah, I mean, they, they could definitely, like they, they have like the Langston Galloway, Etwan Moore... Cameron Payne guard triumvirate Javon yeah. Carter like that's that's their bench guard rotation I think Powell would be an upgrade basically yeah. on any of those guys although, although campaign's been quite good this year yeah he's just had a great year yeah I mean are they willing to put a first rounder on the table for him that's the question but I think if if you're the Raptors and you can get a first rounder from Norm I think you do it and you think it makes sense to like my my feeling has kind of been okay if you if you're holding on to Lowry through the deadline does that then make it the Raptors responsibility to make the team as good as it can possibly be in the present day yeah. and then does trading Norman Powell undercut that mission yeah that's a fair it's a fair statement i mean i i think big part of the reason that the Raptors are in the situation they're in right now where they have to debate trading Kyle Lowry is because they didn't field the most competitive team they could have this year. So I'm definitely with you in that they owe it to Lowry, but if you're strictly looking at it from like a team building perspective and you still think Lowry can give it to you next year, which I think he can, and you're willing to pay for that and you have some confidence that you can keep him based on the money you're willing to dish out for him then I think you're just going to roll with it and have the faith in, in the relationship you've built with Lowry that you can keep him next year, even if this season does go a little off the rails. Yeah. And and you maximize what you can get for Powell. I think that's the way you have to approach it. Yeah, I think that, you know, as much as I said, like the situation with Lowry is complicated, you can kind of boil it down to something very simple, which is 
if the Raptors get wowed by an offer, uh, you know, a package of young players and picks that they think is really going to brighten their long-term outlook, outlook with the Van Vliet, Siakam, OG Ananobi core, then they'll trade Lowry, you know, if it's something that Lowry is amenable to. And if that doesn't happen, then they won't. And they'll just sort of play things by ear, I think. But I do feel like what needs to be happening while these discussions or these sort of speculative scenarios are being played out is like the Raptors surely are trying to get a sense of if they play out the season and they go into, they go into free agency, you know, with Lowry having the potential to choose his next destination, you know, what's it going to take to bring him back? I'm sure they have a good sense of what that is and, and their own willingness to pay that. Um, and then for, you know, it would be the same for any team acquiring him. Like for Philly, for a capped out team like the Sixers, like you mentioned, part of the appeal of getting Lowry would be getting his bird rights. And they're not, you know, because of their cap situation, they're not going to have a chance to sign any free agents. Like Lowry would be essentially their free agent addition. They would just be adding him half a season before he actually got to free agency. And I think that might be appealing enough for them to say, yeah, we'll put Maxi and Thibault and two first round picks on the table because that's going to make us a legitimate contender this year and maybe for like the two years after this. For myriad reasons, that's the destination that makes the most sense yep. for both sides. But um, yeah, I just there, there's a lot that has to go into that calculation for the Raptors and, and for Lowry himself, honestly. You know, like, is that something that he wants? Is he ready for that move and and to play out the rest of his career somewhere else. All right, let's talk Spurs. One of the most surprising teams this season. They've been really in like the four, five, six range in the West all year, while some other West contenders or fringe contenders have punched below their weight. The Spurs have been punching above their weight and have been ahead of some of those teams all year, you know, whether it's Denver, Dallas, DeMar DeRozan having another just kind of great under the radar season, didn't make the all-star team, has become a phenomenal playmaker while remaining a just uber-efficient scorer, despite the limitations with his range, might also be one of the most in-demand free agents this summer, based on how barren this free agent class might be. What do the Spurs do with DeMar? And does do DeMar's limitations make it so that he's actually not as in-demand of a free agent as it would appear on paper? I kind of think, yes, that his limitations like are going to make him not the most in-demand free agent. I've loved watching the Spurs this season. I think they've sneakily been like one of the most fun teams in the league. And I've grown to really appreciate DeMar's craft. The ways that he's rounded out his game are, are really impressive. He has the best assist-to-turnover ratio in the league among players with usage rates above 20%. And... I think that's had a lot of value for this young Spurs team. He's been a, a, an important floor raiser for them. He's the player that they trust to create for them in, in crunch time. And just in the half court in general, like they really rely on his off the dribble creation, you know, for himself and for others. And he's a huge reason that they're punching above their weight this season. But I also don't really believe in this team for this year. And I kind of think... 
you know, for one thing, they had a really easy first half schedule and that's going to change. And even with that first half schedule, they're outperforming their point differential because they've been pretty dynamite in the clutch. But I don't know necessarily that that's going to be sustainable. I think they have a decent shot of, I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that they'll be in the play-in mix for sure. Maybe wind up getting a playoff spot properly and playing a first round series, but that's about as far as I can see them going this year. So it really comes down to whether they want to bring DeMar back or not. And if they don't, because he's 31 and they don't see the long-term fit there with him and, you know, the, the much younger core of players from, you know, DeJounte Murray to Derek White, Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell, uh, Lonnie Walker, Jakob Pertle, like that, that's kind of like the core of the team moving forward. I think they have to decide, you know, what, what the value is in keeping DeMar with that group and being the sort of floor raiser that he's been for them this year versus maybe trying to flip him into a younger piece that can grow like with that group along with, I don't know. I don't know what they could get for him. Like that's the other thing, right? And that going back to the Lowry thing, it's like, yeah, you can say, this team's not going anywhere, so it makes sense for them to trade their best player while they can still get value for him. But what they can get for him is totally dependent on what other teams around the league are willing to pay. And it's pretty hard to find a trade destination for DeMar that makes sense for the Spurs. You know, where, like, can you can you like kind of think of a team that has stuff to give up and, and that, like, you know, it'd be worth their while to like give stuff up to get DeMar. I think the teams that I threw out in my piece were the Knicks. It's complicated because on the one hand, they I think they really need quality guard play and they need more playmaking. And as much as it's been great to watch Julius Randle take that upon his shoulders, I don't really think it's ideal to functionally have him playing point guard for this team. And I think DeRozan could really help in that regard. But then also I think there's, a lot of overlap between him and RJ. Yeah. I don't think Randall you want and like, DeMar and RJ on the same team for RJ's development. Yeah. I mean, I do think that moving RJ off the ball isn't the worst thing in the world. Like he, I, I think that he's possibly better as like a slashing wing than he is as a primary creator. I just worry about, okay. Like when one of Randall Barrett or DeRozan has the ball, what are the other two guys doing? And obviously, you know, like the, the Knicks have thrived on the back of their defense this season and their offense has been trash and DeMar coming in could potentially make their offense better, but it would also harm their defense, which has been the source of their success. I, I threw them out there just because, you know, it's the Knicks and like, they're always sort of in the market for second tier stars but I don't know if that would make sense. And I don't know what they would be able to send back even. Um, what about the Bucks? I think he gives them, I think he gives them something that could help put them over the top in that it's just another shot creator, mm-hmm. which they, and then they and, have the and defense. In the, and, yeah, they, they have the defensive infrastructure to kind of cover for him. But how are the Bucks getting that deal done? Like, are they 
So I think it's like, you know, DiVincenzo is the young guy I think that the Spurs would have to want. And then you sort of make the salaries match with some combination of Brooke Lopez and I guess DJ Augustine. (laughs) I think that's, that's how the salaries would have to work. Yeah, you end up with like Drew, Middleton, DeRozan, and Giannis. Yes, <laughs> and not much else. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can under I understand why the Bucks would be interested in that for sure. I mean, they need the extra shot creation. Uh, it's another offensive initiator. But the thing is, if you bring the, like if you absorb DeMar DeRozan, even you know, as well as he's playing. Like the thing with DeMar is he needs the ball in his hands to be Mm. effective. And he needs the ball in his hands a lot to be effective, whether he's scoring or playmaking, because he's not, he's just not a good off ball threat. And he's a terrible defensive player. But do you think the Bucs get better by enough? Like, do you think they actually get better by the amount adding someone like DeRozan should make them better if you're redistributing some possessions from Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday to DeMar DeRozan. Like that's, that's the way you got to think about it too, right? If it's not just, okay, DeMar's in there now, it's another threat. It's like, well, if the ball's in Middleton or Drew Holiday's hands, is DeMar DeRozan that much of a threat? Mm-hmm. And if the ball's in his hands and you're taking it out of Drew and Middleton's, you know, for a few possessions each, are they that much better? I don't know. Is that worth giving up to Vincenzo? I don't know. Sure, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, but that's the thing. Like you're, you're always sort of reaching a little bit to to try and find a destination for him that makes sense, and that's that's the bind that I think the Spurs are in. Is like, at, like like with the Raptors and Lowry, the, I don't think they're going to trade him just for the sake of trading him. But I don't know if there's a destination that they can find to send him to where they're going to be able to get enough back to justify offloading the guy who as of now is their best player yeah um but then they go into the offseason sort of over a barrel right like you didn't get anything for him so does that make you feel like you need to re-sign him and then if you meet his asking price in free agency are you then saddled with a contract that's going to be just as difficult to trade down the road as the contract that he's on right now because if you can't if you can't find a taker for him when he's on an expiring deal like you're certainly not going to be able to find a taker for him when he's on like a three or four year deal making similar money, which maybe yeah. he won't be. I don't, I'm really curious actually to see what DeRozan's next contract looks like, but it's, it's a real tricky one. All right, let's talk Bulls because out of the six you wrote about, the Bulls might fascinate me the most in the sense that on one hand, they're this young team that's finally figuring it out, you know, behind a rising star in Levine, who's now a legitimate all-star. They've got playoff potential this season, especially with the play-in now a factor. And so on one hand, it seems like they're on this like long upward trajectory. But then you look at their cap sheet and it's like, okay, Levine only has one year left and could be going into next year as an all-star in a contract year who potentially hasn't played a playoff game yet. And so it'd be tough to sell him on Chicago in that sense, in addition, Chicago, despite being one of the league's like big cosmopolitan cities, it's not exactly like a proven, consistent free agent destination. Uh, Markinens and RFA. Patrick Williams, Colby White, Wendell Carter have a bit more team control, obviously, uh, but it's also far from a surefire core. 
how do you balance staying competitive enough to keep Zach Levine happy? You could even ask, is Zach Levine um, even the type of star you think is worth keeping happy? But how do you balance that while also maximizing the future? Because you're not competing this year anyway, even if you get into the play-in or even one of the eight or seven seeds. You're not competing for anything this year. I think trading Thad Young and or Otto Porter, probably both of them, would help. I think there are both those guys fit a lot of contenders and would be in demand for a lot of contenders. But also, if you trade both those guys, especially the way Thad Young's playing this year, you detract from this year's team. So again, there's this weird balancing act because you trade those guys to try to maximize the future a little bit. But it's not like Zach Levine's on this long contract or you've got this really like surefire locked in young core where you can say, okay, even if we punt this season, you know, look at like the Grizzlies last year, for example, right? They made some moves. They fell off after making those moves and they traded Crowder, but them not making the playoffs last year wasn't so much of a concern. Morant was in the middle of a great rookie season. They had this like locked in young core under team control. The Bulls aren't in that situation. You know, the Bulls not competing for a playoff spot this year is a lot different than the Grizzlies falling off last year. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me how they balance that. And again, like I mentioned, you know, whether they even consider Zach Levine the type of star worth keeping happy like that. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if Levine would be amenable to an extension next year because he's making what, like 19 million a year. So he could only make 125% of that. On, on an extension, which I don't know if that takes him into the range where he'd be willing to to sign up and would probably wind up getting to unrestricted free agency and then things get sort of dicey for the Bulls. So I think that's a good point. Like they're they're in this very weird purgatory right now. And they're really like the team that I sort of had in mind when I'm wondering how much value is there in chasing a play-in spot or a low playoff seed for this team because, you know, they haven't made the playoffs since 2017. They've been an unmitigated disaster pretty much since the Jimmy Butler era ended. And as far as just selling hope to the fan base in this season, when Zach Levine has ascended to legitimate all-star status, you know, showing the fan base that you're going for it, that you want to just like make the team as, as good as it can be. Like how, how much value is there in that versus like, if they wanted to flip Thad young, I think they could get a first rounder. No question about it. He he's having an unbelievable year. I've always thought that he's been one of the most underrated defenders in the league. And that's primarily taken the shape of him guarding threes and fours, but he's played a lot of five this season. And aside from, Joel Embiid, who demolished him and Wendell Carter uh, on his way to 50 points last month. I haven't really seen any other centers like totally physically overwhelm him. And playing the five offensively has unlocked all kinds of interesting facets to his game that I didn't think were there. Like he is scoring super efficiently on the roll. He's shooting, I don't know, it's like over 70% at the rim. And his playmaking has like to me, at least like completely come out of nowhere. Like I haven't seen Thad Young play like this playmake like this before. Like he's slinging darts out of the high post and he's playmaking from the elbow. He's carving teams up on the short roll. And I think 
you know, that kind of versatility, a guy who can basically guard positions three through five and can be a facilitator and, you know, an efficient scorer for you. And, and he's got another year left on his contract at like $14 million. So that's a super valuable asset that I think... It's not even fully guaranteed. Well, yeah, but I, I think, you know, whatever right. team acquired yeah. him would be looking to fully guarantee it. But that's... Like, there, there are a ton of teams who would be interested in Thad Young and I think would be willing to put a first-rounder on the table if the Bulls made him available. But But he's been probably their second-best player this year. So if they do that, they're kind of punting on that playoff pursuit. And to your point, yeah, like what does that say to Zach Levine as he as he moves toward a contract year? I think that's a challenging question to answer. There is not a contender in the league right now that would not want Fad Young. Like I don't care what your roster looks like and you know how you might have to move the chess pieces around from a rotation perspective. If you have even a 1% chance of winning a title this year, you're interested in Fad Young. If they don't decide to move him, because they want to be as good as they can possibly be this year. I think they need to think about what they want to do with Markinen. Because those two sides did not come to an extension agreement in the offseason. And I don't know that anything has happened this season that would change that equation. That would really close the gap between the two sides when it comes to negotiating his next deal. Because he played pretty well when he was healthy but he's already missed 20 games with a shoulder injury and like his inability to stay healthy was a big reason I think that the Bulls were reluctant to sign him to like a big money extension so that's persisted as a problem and despite the fact that he has scored way more efficiently than he ever has before because his touch around the rim and his touch from like the short mid-range area has actually been way better he's been an incredibly efficient two-point scorer shooting, I think, like 65% from two-point range. All his limitations are still his limitations. Like, he doesn't really have an in-between game. He, he's not a threat in the post. He's not a playmaker. And he just doesn't have the lateral quickness to be an effective defender. And so despite the fact that he has been an uber-efficient scorer this year, the Bulls have gotten absolutely destroyed with him on the floor. The pairing of him and Carter has not worked, especially offensively. So if they wanted to add, rather than like trading Thad, who's been their second best player, they're like, no, we want to get better this year. I think the way to do that is to put marketing on the table. Because there, there are probably like some rebuilding teams out there that are like, yeah, we'll, we'll roll the dice on Lowry Markkinen. Like we'll put our veterans on the table. What do you think about that? No, that's what I was mentioning. He's an RFA because a decision needs to be made there and this team has some young talent, like whether it's Kobe White or Wendell Carter, or Patrick Williams, who we're both high on. Like even just right there between Williams and Wendell Carter, if those guys are as good, end up as good as they can be and as good as the Bulls hope they are, like how much space is there really for Markkinen in that front court as well, or for all three of those guys? As much as I like Markkinen's offensive game and always have, and as great or as efficient of a season he's having this year, when you look at his inability to stay on the court, to stay healthy, and his defensive limitations. I think you can make the argument that of the three, he's got the lowest ceiling. And if that's the case, I think it's an easy decision that you've got to see what you can get for him. And I think that might be the move the Bulls end up making. 
I think you can make that move and still shop Thad Young. Now, I get that that almost seems like you're completely punting on this season. And what does that signal to Zach Levine? But, you know, I think you cross each bridge as you get there. I think they should be looking at what they can get from Markkanen. I think they should definitely be shopping Thad Young because as we said, every contender will want him and then they can probably get a first rounder for him. And you see, you know, what kind of package you can get from both those guys. And then you go into next season with Zach Levine, a all-star approaching his prime with Wendell Carter and Patrick Williams, another year older, with perhaps a more matured Colby White on the court, with the players and or assets you got from potentially trading one or both of Markkinen and Thad Young. And you can end up maybe convincing Zach Levine with a strong season next year that's a lot more sustainable than any kind of fraudulent run you're making this year, right? So I think it's a fascinating, tricky situation, but I still think the best course of action is to maximize the future see what you can get from Arkanen and Thad Young, and then make your pitch to Zach Levine with a better, more sustainable corn next year. I think there's also a scenario in which, you know, trading Markkanen is more of like an exchange of flawed prospects and like a, you know, just a change of scenery for both players and, and both teams involved wind up getting a player that maybe fits their team better. And it's not even necessarily like a trade with an eye toward the present or the future but more of a let's just try and get a different young player into our system and see if he fits better. One of the trades that I kind of theorized about in my head, because I was going through teams that might have interest in like getting Markkinen, and the three that I sort of landed on were uh, Detroit, OKC, and Minnesota as like, okay, these teams are clearly in a rebuilding phase and looking toward the future. And none of them are free agent destinations. So the, you know, the, the notion of getting like a potential future star or fringe star and paying his next contract, I think it's more palatable because you're not like using your cap space on anything better than that necessarily down the road. So I was thinking maybe like, okay, would the thunder do it for like, you know, George Hill and Hamadou Diallo? Does that get it done for the bulls? Cause I actually think, that does make them better in the here and now. And, you know, with an eye to the future, I think Diallo might make a little bit more sense with their roster than Markkinen does. It's, I think trade like that, where they're getting another young player. So it's not just like a future for present trade that they're making, but more of a, let's try and do both at the same time. Yeah. And honestly, like Markkinen in OKC makes some sense too. Like that's a team. Makes a ton of ne- sense. They need they need some offensive help around Shea Gilgis Alexander, and they've already got some defensive stalwarts and problem solvers there. So I think, yeah, I think you might have come up with a swap that makes a lot of sense for both sides, actually. The Bulls are, are really interesting to me for all of those reasons. Um, I wrote about them in conjunction with the Hawks because both of those teams have sort of similar RFA decisions to make. I think... For the Hawks with John Collins, it's like simultaneously less and more fraught because I would feel a lot better if I was the Hawks about paying John Collins the next contract. But there are maybe like more complicating factors there than there are in Chicago because of the mandate that ownership has sort of handed down to the front office to be competitive now, to make the playoffs this season to go out and spend all the money they spent last off season. And, you know, I, we talked about this last episode, but you wonder how much that's handcuffed them. 
and how how much that might make them disinclined to pay John Collins what he wants in the offseason. And so that makes him a really fascinating trade candidate. And like we've heard rumblings about him being available and what the Hawks might want in return. I think the most recent report was from Shams saying they were looking for a lottery level first round pick, which it, it feels a little bit counterintuitive given this sort of win now mandate. Like if they were to trade their second best player for a draft pick, it's it just feels like they're going in two different directions at once. Yeah. Why'd you fire Lloyd Pierce then? <laughs> and the other thing is like, what are they going to trade John Collins for? Because you look at their roster and it's like, okay, Trey Young is clearly entrenched at point guard. They just paid all this money to Bogdan Bogdanovich, presumably to like be their two guard. DeAndre Hunter has established himself as, you know, their small forward of the future, I think. And Clint Capella is under contract through 2023 at center. So who are they going to get who fits their current roster better than John Collins does? Like, I guess they could bump Hunter up to the four and then, and, and try and trade Collins for like another wing. They could use more wing depth, but I don't know. Where, where are they looking for that kind of deal? I'd like to see this team explore their best five players together, which hasn't happened because Bogdan's been hurt so much this year. But those five that you mentioned between Trey, Bogdan, Hunter, who's also hurt now, Collins and Capella, like I really like to see what those five guys can do together. And it's going to be a shame if we don't really get that chance before they end up moving Collins. But at the same time, I think based on the season John Collins is having, like if the Hawks aren't prepared to pay him pretty damn close to max money, if not max money, then they got to trade him because someone's given him that money this year. I don't really think there's much doubt left about that. I think what's interesting, and it's you brought it up in the piece, is the potential to explore trades for either Huerter or Hunter himself, which is something I hadn't really thought of. I don't think, no, I don't think they should look to trade Hunter. I think Herder for sure would be an interesting trade candidate because like he's not an impending free agent, but he will be extension eligible this coming off season. And I think the idea of Herder is kind of more attractive than the reality so far. Like he is this big six foot seven guard who can pass, who can shoot. And I guess, I don't know that. I mean, that's, that's the idea of him is like a, a really big shooting guard, but I think he's kind of stagnated in his development this year and defensively he hasn't really come along and it's a tenuous fit, you know, between him and Trey young. And because of the way that Trey young dominates the ball, uh, he doesn't get to showcase his playmaking abilities that much. And I think for as well as he does pass the ball, he doesn't have the kind of off the dribble playmaking chops that would allow him to be the guy who's like a hybrid starting two and also like a bench one in the way that maybe like Bogdanovich can be, where he's captaining their their second units and making sure they don't get totally destroyed with Trey off of the floor. They brought in Bogdanovich essentially to play the position that Herder plays. And they also brought in Chris Dunn, who hasn't played yet, but like when he does eventually get into the mix, is I think going to make more sense next to Trey than Herder does in a lot of ways. Like, I think you need a defensively capable guard to play next to Trey, and Herter isn't that. So he might be the guy who, like, he's in his third year. He has these skills, I think, that make him attractive and this perceived upside that might make him a good trade chip. Now might be a time for them to flip him and, and 
maximize the trade value that he has. And maybe that would be cutting bait too soon, but um, the, the Hawks have two significant issues with their roster as I see it. One is I don't think they have enough two-way wing depth, which is why they've like completely collapsed with Hunter injured. And the other is that they don't have a, a quality backup point guard who can make sure that like when Trey is not on the floor, they can actually score points. So They have that guy if they just get to the playoffs. Rondo? <laughs> Correct. Uh, I think this might be the year. No, let's the, not. The let's not do this. Let's die. not do this. Okay, so one option that I considered where they could maybe address both of those issues was would they be able to get the Pacers to bite and give up? I don't even know if that this actually makes sense for the Hawks, but like I'm a big Justin Holiday fan. I think he'd be a great fit for them because he shot the ball exceptionally well this year. I think he's a great defender. And if you can get Holiday and TJ McConnell, then you can kind of address both of those issues at the same time. Holiday's on a great contract for the next three years. McConnell's an impending free agent. So I don't know if that's enough value for the Hawks to get back, but that was one I considered. And then the other one was, would Memphis do it for Kyle Anderson? Because I think he'd be a really fascinating fit in Atlanta because he can actually play a little bit of point, but he can also guard kind of like positions two through four. I don't think Memphis does that for Kevin Horder. Anderson's like been really good for them. He has, but they also like need more shooting. And, you know, Anderson, what is he like 27 now? Yeah. You know, they're, they're sort of a team that's on a bit of a different timeline than that, but that, that Herder might fit a little bit better. I don't know. It's just, I'm not saying they would do it. I just thought that was maybe a, a potentially interesting swap. I am glad you brought up the Pacers for the 174th consecutive episode because, and McConnell, because that's actually one, you, they, they were not one of the six teams you wrote about, but I did want to bring them up because I think McConnell especially and Doug McDermott are actually interesting deadline related pieces because the Pacers have a lot of long-term money already locked up. And with both those guys free agents, I, I just, like, I don't think... I don't know how much they can really give McConnell, who's having a really solid season, who's a great defensive guard, um, who can obviously do other things as well. I, I don't know they're going to be the team that pays him given how much long-term money they've already got on their books. And so I think McConnell especially, and even McDermott, a kind of veteran shooter that contenders will always be willing to pay something for. I think those two guys could and should end up being moved regardless of what the Pacers think of their chances this season, because I just don't think they're going to pay either guy this off season. So get something for it. Like even in, in the case of McDermott, I like, even if you get like a couple second rounders or something, it's better than nothing. McDermott's sneakily had a pretty nice year too. Mm -hmm. And like, he's been sort of the shooting specialist, I feel like for his entire career, but he's actually gotten really good at getting to the basket and, you know, putting the ball on the floor, attacking in a straight line, using his, his size and his strength to not get bumped off his line when he's driving the ball. Like he, he's been pretty effective as a scorer, uh, you know, and, and not just as a shooting specialist this season. So I think that's the kind of player who would generate a lot of interest. Two second rounders shouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. And yeah, the Pacers are definitely in an interesting spot given how their season has gone off of the rails. I don't know. I, I I'm like continuing to sort of hold out a little bit of hope for them because you know, for the millionth time, we just haven't seen them whole. 
And I, and I want to see what it looks like when TJ Warren and Karis Levert are both back and healthy. And it sounds like Levert's going to be back soon, which is great, great news. But I definitely see your point about their inability to probably bring back McDermott and McConnell and, and the value in maybe flipping those pieces now and getting something in return. So in this series, like those, those four teams, Hawks, Bulls, Spurs, and Raptors were the ones where I was kind of like, they could go in either direction. You know, they could buy, they could sell, they could hold. And then there were two teams that I kind of viewed as unquestioned sellers or should be sellers. And that is the Magic and the Kings. It's tough for these teams because they've kind of reimagined themselves multiple times over the last decade or so. And it's probably getting pretty exhausting just sort of cycling through these different rebuilds and not having a whole lot to show for it. In the Kings case, you know, they've gone 15 years now, basically without tasting the playoffs. The Magic haven't gotten out of the first round since the Dwight Howard era. And I I can understand from those teams' perspectives just wanting to do anything they can to like get to the playoffs and hold on to any shred of respectability that they may have. But neither of those teams is going anywhere this season. And both of them have some premier trade assets and an opportunity, I think, to take advantage of what could be a seller's market and brighten their long-term prospects. Like for the Kings, I think what they need to be focused on doing right now is just building around Fox and Halliburton. And yeah, all due respect to Marvin Bagley's dad. Those are the only two guys. (laughs) Those are the two, that's the future for the Kings. Right. And, and I think, you know, so one question they could ask themselves is, okay, is, is like Rashawn Holmes part of that? Because Holmes is like a fantastic pick and roll finisher. I think he could be a good long-term pick and roll partner for De'Aaron Fox. He's a little bit older. He's 27. So, or maybe he's 28, but he's not exactly on that timeline. You know, they could talk themselves into wanting him to be part of that future and wanting to hold on to him. I think... So what complicates that for now is they have his early bird rights, which means that if they're going over the cap to re-sign him, they can only give him 175% of his current salary, which doesn't even get him to mid-level exception money. And so that's not going to cut it. But I think if they, like they have a team option on Corey Joseph that would basically allow them to open up enough money under the cap to re-sign him. But if, you know, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. So I think they can get to something like 18 million under the cap. And then you throw like whatever their first round pick, whatever that starting salary winds up being. And that eats into it a little bit. There's a, a a chance that they could sort of get priced out of the market for him as opposed to maybe trying to flip him now and getting like a first round pick in exchange, which I think would be a possibility given how well Holmes has played. So that's one decision I think that they have to make. Harrison Barnes, he's had a fantastic season, really good complimentary player that I think could help a lot of teams around the league. There have been rumblings about Boston being interested. I think he'd be a really solid addition for them. That should be an easier decision, I think, for the Kings is like moving on from Harrison Barnes because I don't know. What do you think? Like, do you, do you think Barnes has a future? Like, he's he's also only 28, even though it feels like he's been around forever. Yeah, him, him and Buddy Heald are the same age, even though it feels like Harrison Barnes could be Buddy Heald's dad. Heald has what, like 361 left on his deal. Barnes has like 239 and is probably the better player, has been the better player this year. So, 
you know, he's on the shorter contract, better player, probably fits contenders a little more. I've been saying I think they need to they they should be willing to deal basically everybody except Fox and Halliburton, build around those two guys, flip Holmes. Even I, I love Rashawn Holmes, but I just don't think he's on the same timeline as those guys and trade at least one of Barnes or Heald. Barnes is the easier target. So I'm with you on all that. Now, what they can get for Barnes will be interesting. Like, okay, here's a question. I think DeMar DeRozan's the better player. Yeah. But I think you might be able to get a better return for Harrison Barnes. I think no question about it. But do you agree with both of those statements that that DeRozan's the better player and Barnes is the better trade chip? This is like something I kind of flip-flop on a lot. And it's just an interesting conversation in general is like, you're, you, we're never comparing players in a vacuum. And, and we, we, we try to, you know, like we try to make these top hundred lists and just be like, okay, we're comparing one player versus another, which one is better objectively on their own. And that's just not really how the NBA works. Is DeMar DeRozan like a more talented player than Harrison Barnes? Yes. But can Harrison Barnes help more teams around the league that have, you know, real playoff ambitions than DeMar DeRozan can? I think the answer to that is yes, because if you're like, if you have, if you have serious playoff ambitions, then I think you already have players essentially who do what DeMar DeRozan does, or at least in the aggregate, you know, you have several players who can make plays with the ball in their hands and get to the rim and get to the free throw line. Like all the stuff that he offers, I think has less value to a team that is already super competitive. Whereas the skills that Barnes brings, which is like, he's a much better floor spacer, better defender. Though You know, Barnes isn't like a great defender, but I just think he fits more seamlessly onto a good team. So you can say DeMar is better, but like, what does that really mean at the end of the day? If, Barnes is like the more valuable player to a team that has championship ambitions. He has more term left on his deal as well, which yeah. maybe does that make him more appealing like or less appealing? That's another thing that you never really know. Exactly. You had mentioned the Magic too, who I think are interesting because like to me, the Magic's future is Jonathan Isaac, Cole Anthony, and Markel Fultz. And Isaac and Fultz are both out for the year. So you're not even getting like development time for them, which sucks. Cole Anthony is still obviously very young and a rookie. Other than those three guys, I, like, I don't know if there's anyone on the Magic right now, like, even Mo Bamba, who I was high on draft yeah. time. Like, I don't know if there's anyone other than the three I've already mentioned that are really solidified in their future. You're not going anywhere in the East this year anyway. You might not even be good enough to make the play-in game as presently constructed. You have to sell a farm here. And, and not sell a farm to acquire talent, but sell a farm in, in terms of like, you're the one giving up the talent and you see what that brings you in the form of young players and draft assets. And as you mentioned in the post too, like this magic team's interesting because I'm sure you can say this for a lot of bad teams, but like some lottery luck falls on them this year. They get a Cade Cunningham or a Jalen Green or a Jalen Suggs or uh, Mobley is the other guy, the big guy. Like there's a lot of guys and I'm forgetting one too. There's five really good prospects. Right. They get one of those guys, preferably one of the top two or Cade himself and you add that to a returning Isaac and whatever Fultz becomes and Cole Anthony, and all of a sudden you're in business. I guess you can make the argument they can get land one of those guys without having to sell the farm because they're bad enough already. But if you have the opportunity to potentially add one of those guys while also accumulating a ton of other 
draft capital and young players, why not do it? And I mean, that starts with Vooch, who we both love. You know, he made another all-star team this year, but he's also 30 or 31. If we're saying their future is Jonathan Isaac, Markel Fultz, and Cole Anthony, I don't really see how Vucevic at his age is part of that future. So, you know, between Vooch, between Aaron Gordon, even Terrence Ross, they got to be... They got to be seeing what all of these guys can get them on the market. Yeah, Vooch is, I mean, obviously going to be the most interesting one because, I mean, to me, like trading Fournier should be a no-brainer. He's an right. Fournier. agent, you know, who as a complementary piece, I think could fit fairly seamlessly for a lot of different teams. He can shoot off of movement. He can be a secondary playmaker. He's got a pretty movable contract. Like whatever they can get for Fournier, they should be trying to get. And that also is just going to accelerate their plunge to the bottom of the standings, which is going to help them get the kind of top draft pick that they need in order to turn this thing around. Vooch is interesting because if they're looking ahead, you know, he's under contract for two years after this one. Doesn't seem like he's getting any worse anytime soon. You know, if you land somebody like Cade, who can be an impact player right away, I think maybe you want to have Vooch around to be like the anchor for a team that is going to be bringing a bunch of young players around and could actually be pretty good next year. Is he going to have any less value in the off season than he has now as a trade piece? Like they don't, they don't need to be in any kind of rush to trade Vucevic is my point. And I'm not even necessarily saying they shouldn't do it if they get an offer they like, but I just think that they can afford to wait because his trade value will still be there. And I think they can justify waiting to see what it looks like next year with a healthy Isaac, with a healthy Fultz, with, you know, a potentially a, a top five pick in the mix and Vooch still there at the center of it all. I can also say, like, if they can get a haul for him, then, I mean, I don't think that they that they should be sitting on their hands necessarily either. I just think that they don't need to feel any kind of pressure or any kind of rush to get a deal like that done now. Aaron Gordon, I mean, is the other one where like he's sort of been on the trade block seemingly forever. Whether his development has plateaued or whether he's just reached the end of the road in Orlando and like there's only so much further that that partnership can go, he'd be a really fascinating trade asset. Like that's the kind of player who I think could fit in a lot of different situations because of his defensive flexibility, like his playmaking ability, how good he is in transition. He can do a lot of different things. And while he's never really gotten to the point where he's become great at anything, sometimes it's good just to have like a gap filler who can do a lot of different stuff for you and give you the kind of lineup flexibility that he can give. Yeah. Gordon to me is the kind of guy that will eventually thrive in a kind of Swiss army knife role player, but better than your average role player kind of role on a good team. And then that's when everyone will really like appreciate what his value is. Until then, if he just continues to be miscast as like some sort of top or like top two option on the offensive end, you're you're never really going to get his full value. He fits, you know, like a lot of the guys we've talked about, he fits a lot of contenders in the right role. Before we cap this off, I have two or three potential Vucevic destinations that really interest me that I want to get your thoughts on. One we've talked about before, because when we were speculating about whether the Warriors would keep or move the number two pick, I mentioned Vucevic as like the number one guy that I thought they should target if they were going to trade it. So now that they have 
made that pick and that pick is James Wiseman, would they be willing to trade James Wiseman along no with, chance. Andrew, no along chance with in Andrew Wiggins' salary in exchange for Vucevic? No chance in hell. Why not? They're way too high on Wiseman to trade him for a 31-year-old Nick Vucevic. But like, they see Wiseman just... as the bridge to their future, who can maybe contribute in the next year or two on still contending teams while also being a pillar of their future. But their future, like once, you know, Steph Curry is no longer Steph Curry and, and Draymond is no longer in the picture. Like what, what is that future? It's Wiseman and whoever they draft with the Timberwolves pick. Right. But I mean, they could keep the Timberwolves pick and have a separate bridge to a separate future. And instead, just think about it. Okay. Like, I don't, Vucevic, I don't think they're giving up Wiseman for Nick Vucevic, man. Okay. Fair enough. Even if you don't agree, I think they are very high on Wiseman. Vooch for this year and the two years after this one with Steph, Draymond, and eventually Clay would be pretty nasty. Of course it would be. Just saying. Okay. So you don't think that's that's a possibility? No. Okay. What about Dallas in exchange for Chris Dapps Porzingis? Now this I like. This I like. The like, Mavs getting off that Porzingis deal is something that it sounds like they might want to do. And I think Vooch would fit like a goddamn glove. Next to Luca, yeah. I mean, he's, he gives you sort of the same pick and pop threat that Porzingis does. I, he doesn't have the same range. Like Porzingis can really stretch it out to like twenty eight feet and beyond. And obviously, he has Porzingis gives you a little bit more as a role man. But I, I think that'd be a really fascinating one. And then Charlotte, Charlotte's the other team that's apparently been sniffing around, and like they have all those guards one of whom is going to be expendable. So whether it's like Terry Rozier or Devontae Graham, yeah, you know. I mean, like Lamelo Hayward Vucevic might be the sneakiest good team you would never pick to be good. <laughs> no, like that, I'm serious. Like for sure, for sure. Are you competing for a title? Of course not. But are you better than anyone will give you credit for coming into the year and then you win like 47 games three years in a row? Yes. And hey, Charlotte would sign up for that in a heartbeat. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that team next year, like with whatever Lamella winds up being next year and if Hayward is still the Hayward that they got this year and Vooch is still the Vooch that we've seen this year, like that could be a 50-win team. Yeah, I mean, LaMelo's special, man. And, like, the one thing they're really missing is a quality big man. I, I think Charlotte makes a lot of sense. Could be, like, a, you know, Zeller. Or if they if Rogier is the guy they want to trade, then that, that's making up the salary difference right there. I don't know if that's, like, a straight-up swap that the Magic would be willing to do, but I think that could be pretty interesting. I think it'd be very interesting. But anyway, I think the Magic, as, as a seller, are certainly a team to watch, and the Kings as well. We'll no doubt have more deadline related discussions to have over the next couple of weeks because things are bound to happen who knows when we get back together next week there might even be a trade to talk about until that point i think we've exhausted our topics of discussion this week for joe wolf on i'm joseph Cacharo. pound the rock